Welcome to the Tuesday morning men's Bible study at Park City's Presbyterian Church. My name is Paul Gold, one of the pastors here. Never met you before. I'd love to meet you afterwards. If you are new and need a table, please see Pat and Elaine at the front table and they will get you connected. If you guys have been here very long, you know that we don't make lots of announcements. So if we are going to make announcements, it's pretty important. So Michael Denton, one of our deacons, is here. It's going to talk a little bit about Harvey Relief and the efforts that are ongoing and a great opportunity for you to come and to serve those who are down in the Houston area. Thank you, Bob. Good morning, men. Um, no, I'm not going quail hunting, and no, I'm not in charge of traffic this morning, but this is a warm jacket on a cool morning. Here's what we've got, guys. PCPC.org is our website. Harvey Relief is what we're going to talk about very quickly. Um, since the hurricane has now gone and passed, the cameras have stopped rolling. It's been a little over two months. Normally in a flood, in a hurricane, it takes three years for families to recover, not just a couple of months. So this is what our church has done. In the last two and a half months, we have deployed enough resources to be able to support 19 of our ministry churches in South Texas. Those churches went out with their diaconate and their members to help those members specifically in the critical uh, short weeks after the hurricane, as well as the other individuals on the blocks next to those members. We have a call to action for this church. It's very, very specific. Two ways you can serve. Number one, we have extend trips that are leaving from PCPC every two weeks on a Thursday evening at 5.30 and returning on Saturday at 5.30. It's a 48-hour commitment. You will be erecting a shed of hope. I'll tell you that what that is in a minute or you will be ripping out sheetrock in someone's home and praying over uh, individuals and sharing the gospel. That's it. You don't, know, you don't need to know how to do anything other than use that finger right there to pull a drill. That's it. So how do you do that? You go to our website and you sign up. We have dates that start this next weekend, not this coming, but uh, a week from now, mid-November and the end of November are the only two trips that we are I have on the books for the remainder of 2017, and then every two weeks starting in January all the way through May. And we need men to saddle up, grab the guys at your table, go ahead and sign up, go for 48 hours, and go bless some people that are still desperately in need. That's number one. Number two, you can also go to our website and sign up to do a three-hour shift here in Dallas, right over at Love Field, at our new Disaster Recovery Center. That's where we're building Sheds of Hope. You will go over there in the morning for three hours on a Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. Three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon. You can go repetitively, and you're simply putting together the shed. What is a shed? A shed is an eight-foot by eight-foot, heavily reinforced box that we put in the back of people's homes so they have a place to put their items that are either in their garage or actually out in their front yard. They have a place to secure those items. It is a ministry within itself. So it is a place for people to feel secure with their items, but it gives us, and actually the local church, not PCPC, an opportunity to share the gospel. Six months later, we're coming back, and that shed is getting painted. The gospel is reshared with that family. Six months after that, when it's hopefully time for them to move back into their homes, we're going and taking those items out of that shed and placing it back in. It is connecting people with their local church. So the specific call, man, is... Grab your table, sign up, pcpc.org, go to Houston on an extend trip. You just show up here. We've got a van. We'll take everybody down. Uh, where's Brent? Brent's right there. I did not know Brent um, before we went, and we had a, a lot of fun. We had a lot 
too many, way too many cheeseburgers. But we had a great time. It was an incredible fellowship. It blessed me beyond anything that I had even anticipated. Got to share the gospel with a lady who'd never heard the word of God with her three children sitting there, single mom, who'd never had a Bible. The day before, her longest uh, childhood friend showed up and handed her a Bible. Many of you have heard this story, but handed her a Bible and inside that cover it said, God told me to give you this Bible. God is moving magnificently, men, and we need to saddle up and we need to go help um, the people in South Texas and Houston. So please pray about it. Grab the guys at your tables and let's go. All right, thanks, Michael. Let's, uh, let's pray in light of all that has happened, you know, months ago with the hurricanes, um, the events that happened over the weekend, the shooting. Let's pray. This morning we're talking about perseverance, what it means to persevere not in our own strength, not as men who have the ability to just get through things, but to persevere in and through Jesus Christ. So let's pray and ask that he would meet us here as we study his word together. Father, we do pray for the ongoing relief efforts uh, down in the Houston area as well as uh, all over, all over the coast of Texas, as well as Puerto Rico, places that are suffering and hurting. We pray as well this morning for the men and women of Sutherland Springs, Texas, who are grieving, who are mourning, who are asking, God, where are you in the midst of this? And we pray, Father, that you would be glorified in the midst of such things that you would show us what it looks like to persevere in all things because you are with us in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 27, go ahead and uh, open your Bible or grab the sheet in front of you. That's where we're going to be, Psalm 27. The book, The Trouble with Paris, it's a short little book, has in it a, a short story about a pastor who meets a young woman. And this young woman uh, is going on and on about her life and about how she just doesn't think it's ended up the way that she ever thought it would, that her dreams have not realized, they have not come to fruition, and that she is now finding it uh, difficult to get out of bed in the morning. She's finding it difficult to engage with others. She's finding it difficult to find any meaning of life. For all accounts, it would seem that this young woman is now suffering from depression. And as, she begins to, as this pastor begins to talk to this young woman about what she's experienced, she begins to reveal that a couple years ago, her father left um, their family for another woman. And so it's clear that all of this is coming from this deep place of hurt, uh, of real hurt, of real pain, of real struggle. And so, as many pastors do, as he is engaging this woman and trying to understand where she's at, he asks her, well, what are you going to do? What are you doing about this? Where do you turn? What, where do you go when you're experiencing this kind of depression? And this was her answer. I'm going to move to Paris. I'm going to move to Paris, France. Because if I can move to Paris, then perhaps there my troubles will be gone. I can leave them behind and I can start over. He reconnected with this woman about a year later and asked her over email, how's Paris? And she said, well, Paris didn't turn out so good. I now live in Dublin, Ireland. And this is why the book is called The Trouble with Paris. See, the trouble with Paris is escaping from our troubles 
when things get hard, never quite works out, does it? You've all heard of the statement, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? Is the grass always greener on the other side? No, it's filled with the same weeds, right? The same brown patches. The reality is, is the suffering that we face in this life, the troubles that we face are all around us. And you can do whatever you would like to do to try to escape them, pretending that the grass is greener on the other side, when all the while, perhaps, what we really need to learn to do is to bloom where God has planted us. So you contrast all of this with the Benedictine monks. The Benedictine monks take three vows when they enter a monastery. The first vow is a vow of obedience, to obey God's commands as they are found in the scriptures. The second vow that a Benedictine monk takes is called a conversion of life. You might know that as celibacy, right? A vow to stay chaste for the rest of their life for the sake of the kingdom and a vow of poverty. But it's the third vow, the third vow that I think is actually the most radical, even more radical than poverty, even more radical than chastity. It's called the vow of stability. When Benedictine monks make this vow of stability, they are saying, I am going to stay here in this monastery for the rest of my life, regardless of what happens. The vow of stability is a commitment to stay in the midst of all of the circumstances, all of the people, all of the places that God puts us in, and to not try to avoid them, not try to escape them. Okay, why? Why do they do this? I'm going to read you this. This is a quote from Bishop Anthony Bloom. He says, At the heart of stability, there is the certitude that God is everywhere. He is everywhere. That we have no need to seek him elsewhere. That if I can't find God here, I won't find him anywhere. In other words, the vow of stability is about perseverance. It's about perseverance. It's about saying, God is here. Regardless of what you are experiencing, regardless of what you are facing, God is in the midst of that. And if you are fooling yourself thinking, well, he must not be here, he must be somewhere else, and so I must chase him, then you are missing out on who God is. That in all things, in joy and in sorrow, God is present. If you were with us last week, we talked about lament. Okay, this is taking lament to the next level. To saying not only are we called as God's men to cry out and pray our tears because God cares, it's to recognize that in all things, in joy and in sorrow, in plenty or in want, in the suffering, when the day gets hard, in the day of trouble, as the psalmist says, God is there. He is there and He has called us to persevere. Perseverance, not to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, to figure it out on our own, to come up with the right game plan so we can get through it. No, perseverance in and through Jesus Christ. What does this kind of perseverance look like? What does it look like when things get hard, not to avoid them, but to press into them in and through Christ? Four ways that we'll see this morning in Psalm 27 very quickly, and I'll send you to your tables. The first is fear. We're going to talk about fear this morning. Second, abide. 
Third, pray. Fourth, wait. In these four ways, we find a picture of what it looks like to persevere in and through Jesus Christ in all things, in all things, even in the day of trouble. Okay, what does it mean to fear? Why don't you look at verse 1 of Psalm 27. The psalmist says this, he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You may remember if you were with us when our study of Proverbs. Proverbs, the very first chapter, verse 7, says this. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fears despise wisdom and instruction. In the same way we see this in Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Here's the point. We all have fears, and I'll talk about this more in a second. We don't like to admit that we fear, particularly as men, but we all have fears. We all have anxieties. We all have things we're worried about. I know that is undoubtedly true for you this morning. That if I were to force you long enough to sit down this morning and write down the things that are occupying your mind, things that you wake up immediately thinking about, or perhaps end your day dwelling on, things that you are dreading at work or a conversation with your wife or a hard conversation with one of your children, what are you worried about? What are you anxious about? What occupies your heart and mind? What are you afraid of? We hate talking about what we're afraid of. We, we would much rather avoid it at all costs. And the psalmist's point is this, who do we have to be afraid of? This is David, King David, saying, Who's, who should we fear when God is in control of all things? The one person we should ever fear in a healthy way is God himself. And this is how he talks about it. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The word light is used throughout the Bible. A picture, an image, an image for truth or an image for justice or goodness, an image for joy. Here, the image of light is used as a solution for fear. The Lord is my light and my salvation. For David to say that the Lord is my light, it's assuming that there is darkness. And there is no doubt that David is surrounded by darkness. We don't know a lot about this particular psalm, the occasion when it was written, but probably it was written when David was taking refuge from Absalom. Now, how many know who Absalom was? Well, Absalom had risen up, risen up an army to try to overtake the throne. It was a revolt against David and the kingdom itself. And oh, by the way, Absalom was David's son. So here is King David taking refuge, surrounded by an army that not only wants to take the kingdom from him, but is being led by his own son. I want you to notice what he says in verse 2 and 3. He says, When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, literally, Absalom's army, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, literally. Yet I will be confident. 
I don't know what you're facing this morning. I don't know what battles you are fighting, what war you were in. My guess is it's not because your son has tried to take over the family business and is waging war against you. Maybe it is. I don't know what you're facing. But I want you to really be honest with your fear this morning. That is a hard thing to do. Children are very honest about their fear, right? My daughters, my two oldest daughters, Annalise and Margaret, to this, they, they still, and probably will do this for many more years now, they sleep with so much light in their room. I'm like, how, how are you even falling asleep? There are two lights that we have since put on dimmers, right, to try to reduce it. And it's, it's, it's amazing that they, they are so afraid of the dark that they cannot fall asleep without some light in their room. And my wife and I, before we go to bed, we always go in there and we turn the lights down <laughs> after they're asleep. But they don't know. They don't know that's happening. What's dark in your life? What are you afraid of? We don't like to admit that there's an ounce of fear in us as men. But the reality is, is deep down in the darkest parts of your heart, there are anxieties that are occupying your heart and mind. And we have learned to escape from them, to numb them, to run from them. We do this in so many different ways. Sometimes we do this literally by running from them, that when something gets hard in life, we'll move cities. When a job becomes difficult, we'll change careers. Where do you feel trapped? Here's David, encircled by an army. He feels trapped. He feels encircled. What do you feel trapped by? And what are you trying to escape? Sometimes it's a marriage. That's hard. Sometimes it's children who aren't listening to our instruction. And we want nothing more than to just get out. And yes, sometimes we try to get out literally, physically, by just leaving but other times we try to avoid by escape. There's nothing wrong with golf. How do you use golf? Do you use golf as an escape mechanism to avoid the things that are difficult in life, right? We do this with substances, right? We'll, we'll do this with um, alcohol. Uh, we'll do this with great things, um, SEC football, right? the Houston Astros, right, winning the World Series. There are countless ways that we try to escape the trouble in this life. Perseverance says that we need not escape because God is here in the midst of our suffering, in the day of trouble. He is here, and He is the one who will lead us through. He is the one who we fear, not any of the things that life has to throw at us. That's first. Second, We're called to abide. How do we persevere? Well, if it begins with fearing the Lord above all else, it continues with abiding, abiding with Him. Look at verse 4. David says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to acquire into His temple. 
Notice what David says. He's surrounded by armies, right? He is feeling trapped. War is literally being waged against him. And what is his prayer? What is his prayer? One thing. One thing I ask of the Lord that I would dwell in his temple. I wonder how focused are your prayers in all circumstances, but particularly in the day of trouble, in times of suffering. How focused are your prayers? Do you find yourself singularly focused on one thing? Typically, that thing is whatever we're most anxious about. Yet here is David, and what is he? His focus is on one thing that I might dwell in the house of the Lord. What's he talking about? What does it mean to dwell in the house of the Lord? It's to worship. It's to worship. He says this, he continues, second part of verse 4, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, to bask in the glory of the Lord, even in the midst of something that is painful, even in the midst of something that is difficult, even in the midst of something we cannot control. Why do you think David's focus? We might look at this and say, wow, David, I mean, that's amazing. How could you do that? You know, to have that kind of focus, I wish I could do that. But why do you think David's focus is that way? Because I think just like the Apostle Peter, he's come to the end of himself and he's saying, where else can I turn? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's what Peter says. Here is David. I've exhausted all my resources. I find myself surrounded by an army. Where else will I turn? One thing I ask of the Lord that I would dwell in his temple. What does that look like for us? It looks like abiding, dwelling, taking up residence, literally is what that word means. Living a life in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus says it this way in John 15. He says, I am the vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to me. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears for much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If persevering in the Lord begins with a proper understanding of his sovereignty and his magnitude to fear him rather than the things of this life, it continues with recognizing that we are utterly dependent on him. That apart from him, we can do nothing. And so just like the grass is greener on the other side, we have another saying in the midst of trouble. It's when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And that's what we do, right? Especially as men, when we face difficulties, whatever they might be, we say, look, I have two options. I can either run away or I can press in. If I press in, here's what it's going to look like. I'm going to figure it out. My wheels are going to start turning. I'm going to figure out what resources and what abilities I have, what relationships, what things that I have built in my business, 
what words that I can say in order to overcome this situation. But that is not perseverance. That is a feeble attempt to try to conquer something that only God can do. To abide in Christ is to say, apart from Him, we literally can do nothing. And so in all things, every day, our prayer should be singular, right? At least it begins with a singular focus. One thing I should ask, that I would gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, that I would dwell with Him in the temple. Temple now, no longer this physical place, but it's us. That Christ now is abiding in us. We are that temple. And He has called us to abide in Him, to live through Him, to recognize there is no other place we can turn. Okay, what does it look like to turn to Christ then? Well, it's to pray, to pray. David begins to pray directly to the Lord after this kind of revelation of what it means to worship Him. In verse 7, notice how he begins his prayer. He says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me, and answer me. I want you to notice as I read this prayer how persistent he is. That his perseverance is not just an action, his perseverance is in prayer. That he is persevering with the Lord in prayer. Verse 8, he says, You have said, Seek my face. So my heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. And they breathe out violence. Notice his prayer. You have said, David says, you said, seek my face. So I'm seeking you. And as you read his prayer, you can't help but wonder, how often has David prayed this? He says, hide not from me. Have you ever prayed and felt like God was not there? Honestly. Have you ever found yourself praying for something over and over and over again and feeling like he is not answering you? Here is David. I think he feels that. He's saying, don't hide from me. Don't leave me here just praying into the wind. Hide not your face to me. Have you ever thought, well, why isn't God listening to me? Maybe it's because I'm sinful. And maybe he's just not listening to a sinner like me. Do you notice what David says? He says, turn not your servant away in anger. Right? Don't don't turn away because I deserve wrath. No, listen to me. Be gracious to me. Don't hide from me. He says, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. I wonder how persistent are you in your prayers? How many times will you pray to the Lord for something and then give up if you don't get the answer that you are looking for? What does it look like to persevere in prayer? To not give up, to not lose heart, but to continually go to the Lord, 
even when you feel like he is far off, to plead with him on the level of David, saying, don't hide from me. Don't leave me here. Don't let me just pray these prayers to somebody who's not listening, but hear me, answer me, be near to me. Jesus gives us an example of this in one of his parables. Luke 18, it says, Luke says that Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And Jesus said there was a city, and in this city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And Jesus said, Hear what this unrighteous judge says, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus' point is, look, here's this judge who doesn't care about people and certainly doesn't care about God. And this woman, every day, comes to him asking for justice. And eventually he just gives in, right? It's like the child who keeps asking for the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again until eventually the parent just gives in. Not because they love the child, but because they just don't want to hear it anymore. That's what this judge is doing. He's saying as much. He's saying, look, I'm not doing this because I love God. I'm not even doing this because I love this woman. I just don't want to listen to her anymore. And so I'll give her justice. And Jesus' point is, look, do you not realize that we have a judge in heaven who is righteous, who is just, and who does love you? And if we have a God who loves us, don't you realize that he will graciously give us much more than this judge would? And so why give up? Why do we give up? Why do we fail to persist in our prayer? Because at the end of the day, we assume that he doesn't care for us, that he's not there in the midst of his suffering, that if we are suffering, if we are experiencing pain, then God must be absent. It's the last thing where we're going to end this morning. How do we persevere? Ultimately, it means to wait. It means to wait on the Lord. To wait. And we hate waiting, don't we? Psalm 27, verse 13. David says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So here's David. He's surrounded by an army. He is praying that God would not hide his face from him. He is asking one thing that I would seek, that I would dwell with the Lord. And he ends by saying, wait. Wait. Wait on him. He is here. He has not abandoned you. Be patient. Persevere. And wait. All of this is rooted in this hope, this confidence. Verse 13. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. What's the land of the living? What's he talking about? The land of eternal life. He's talking about heaven. 
contrasted against the land of the dying. That's earth. That's here. A place that is broken, surrounded by decay and sin. A place that is literally falling apart all around us. He is saying, one day I know this. I believe that I will fully see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Brothers, we know the end of the story. We know that one day Christ will return. But for now, we have to wait. And we hate it. We've always hated it. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see them constantly wrestling with waiting on God to send a Messiah. And they're crying out, oh Lord, how long? How long must we suffer here as we wait for you to send our victor? And then we see Christ Messiah, he comes, right? In the person of a little baby born in a manger, right? Born in humility, and he goes to the cross. Now for us, the New Testament church, we're waiting again. We're waiting for one day when Christ is going to return. But as we wait for that day, just like our Old Testament brothers and sisters, we suffer. We suffer. We suffer in all kinds of things. And again, I don't know where that has you this morning. I don't want you to make up something that you're facing. But the reality is, as we experience the brokenness of this world, sometimes in the most profound and deep ways that cause us to mourn, in other ways, we experience this brokenness in a business deal that is just not coming to fruition. In a marriage that we're struggling through. Right? We experience this brokenness over and over and over again. What do we do with it? The challenge for us this morning is not to avoid it, not to escape it, but to press into it and to say, Christ is here, even in the midst of of this, even in the suffering. Romans 8, Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. As we suffer, we are waiting with patience for Christ to return, but as we wait, we are recognizing that even though we are waiting on Him, even in the waiting itself, He is with us. So brothers, by now I know that you have seen what has happened in Sutherland Springs. You cannot imagine anything more horrific. A little church of 50 people, 50, 26 people, I think now 27, have lost their life. Another 20 are wounded. In other words, everybody, everybody has some kind of casualty. 4% of this little town, the population has been lost. You cannot imagine suffering like that. And yet even in the midst of that, I don't know if you saw Pastor Frank Pomeroy and his wife give a statement. This is what they said. And it's powerful, it's profound, and it's simple, and it's complicated. But as Pastor Palmer and his wife came to the podium, you can tell they are broken. They've lost their own daughter. They've lost over half their church. Their building is beyond repair. And they give a prepared statement. 
The pastor, you can tell he is beside himself. It's hard for him to put words. And so he asks his wife to read a prepared statement. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's eloquent. And they end their prepared statement, and as good press people do, they don't let them just leave. And so the the press are just asking question after question, and you can watch Pastor Pomeroy try to avoid these questions, but you can tell at some point, like in a lot of situations like this, when somebody gives a statement and they've turned around to leave, and there's just one question that gets asked that they can't just let stay there. And he turns back around to the podium, And this is what he says. He says, for Christ. For Christ. On Christ. On Christ. He just repeats it. What does he mean by that? He says, lean not on your own understanding. I do not understand. Lean on Christ. And he turns and walks away. It's simple. It's profound. It's loaded with pain. Here is a man who is admitting that he does not understand. In the midst of this suffering, he does not understand. But one thing he knows, to lean not on his own understanding, but to lean on Christ. Christ, the one who suffered for us, who persevered in the midst of the Garden of Gethsemane, who said, not my will be done, but yours be done. And he persevered to the cross for you and for me and for every one of those members at First Baptist Church, Sutherland Springs. In the midst of all things, in joy and in sorrow, Christ is with you and he is with me. May we not avoid him in joy and may we not avoid him in suffering but may we persevere. Let me pray and send you to your tables. Father, we ask that you would enable us to persevere. We recognize that we cannot do this in our own strength. Whatever we face, whatever we're trying to escape from, we pray that you would give us the strength to press in, to see that you are the God not only of good things, but you are a God even in the midst of suffering. We know this is true because your own son suffered for us. And so may we seek you In all things, even in the midst of pain and brokenness, even when things become hard, even in the day of trouble. Father, perhaps in the day of trouble, in that day would be the day that we encounter you the most and experience the fullness of joy of dwelling in your courts and in your house all the days of life. Give us a vision for that. Call us and enable us to persevere in and through Christ, we ask in his name. Amen.